This is the PowerShell Podcast. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. PowerShell Podcast. A production of PDQ.com. Making device management simple, secure, and pretty damn quick. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to PowerShell Podcast. I'm, uh, I'm Jordan. I kind of exist on this thing. But then we have co-host, mega superstar, Andrew Plaw. Love it. Thank you. And today we have special guest Stephen Judd, who's here to explain away all of our PowerShell concerns. Hello and welcome. Thank you for allowing me to join you guys today. So I don't know if people listen to every episode, but you are officially our first returning guest. Oh, am I really? Yep. You spoke to us briefly at Summit. We, we, we call it PowerShell After Dark because I think we're in a bar. That's right. That's right. I I, I didn't really consider that a... Um, uh, an official one because it was just kind of us sitting around yappity yapping with a with a microphone telling telling stories and cracking jokes and having a good time so yeah i guess um uh, pretty exciting then i'm glad to be back yeah jordan he has standards for what he considers an actual podcast appearance <laughs> and we have officially now met that standard so yay for us so i know <laughs> kelly who is a big audio nerd was excited when you saw that you were the guest, just because we talked a lot about, uh, like you knew the microphones on site uh, oh. when we were in the bar. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of an audio nerd, although I've found that a couple of my other friends are are bigger audio nerds than me. But that's you know that's the big microphone uh, over here. And yesterday I was I uh, pinged Andrew. I'm like, hey, we need to do a sound check because I need to get everything dialed in. So you know, yeah, I may be a little. I'm maybe a little kind of obsessive about that. I love it when our guests put so much effort into, you know, making sure their camera's placed right, making sure they look uh, at the camera and are centered and stuff. And Jordan, it feels like you and I, uh, sometimes we don't always follow all those. <laughs> I've yet to find the task I can't half-ass. Hey, you know what? Um, that's like a great transition into PowerShell, right? Because you can you can halfway do a lot of things, and it's amazing the power that you can get from it. And you're like, you know, this doesn't, this isn't the perfect script, or I didn't do this or this that I wanted to do. And I have a phrase that I use that um, I try to, you know, especially when people are talking to me about PowerShell, I say, working code is working code, right? If the code works and it does what it's supposed to do then yes, you can do all these other things to it, but don't ever lose sight of the fact that if you did a solution and it works, that is working code. Especially when you have like us each week, if you're listening to this podcast, we're talking to some people with some super fancy modules and they solve things to a really high level. Um, but I think it's really great to highlight that wherever you are, if what you're doing is working, that's fantastic. You're getting value. You're doing great stuff. Yeah. I don't know if you guys happened to see my last tweet that I did about uh, sending a, a laptop into sleep mode. And, you know, it's it's just a little hacky thing that I, I came across. I was like, you know what? I can turn that into a function. I can turn that into a really fast function so that I'm four characters plus the tab key away from sending my laptop to sleep. Because at the time when I wrote that sucker, I was tired of getting home from work and pulling my laptop out and burning my hand on the easy bake oven I had created on the way home. And I definitely left off the brownie mix. Otherwise, I'd had a snack by the time I got home. I'm just glad it wasn't just me, because every time I did, I'm like, I have to be the only person that does this. But no. And 
uh, one of the comments I remember is like, yeah, that doesn't help you if it wakes up magically in your bag. Windows has a nasty habit of, of doing that occasionally. Be like, hey, I need to wake up and install this thing that I was supposed to do. And yeah, it's, it's not going to save you from that. Uh, in fact, this morning I woke up. It's kind of funny. I was thinking about that this morning. I'm like, you know what? I bet that command can do hibernate as well. I need to update it so that it will do either or. And so now we're talking about growing the function, right? So talking about PowerShell again, I had this simple function. It has zero parameters. It has zero help. It has nothing. And now I'm thinking about, well, what if I want the default to be sleep, but I want to be able to choose hibernate? Well, I don't want to recreate the shutdown utility. It does its thing. And I don't want to recreate start computer and stop computer. Those already exist, right? But maybe I want something that will do start hibernate or something like that. So now I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I need to add a parameter. And if that's the kind of parameter, it's not going to take any data. So it's just going to be a switch parameter style. So this is how my mind starts thinking about you know, what can I do with my script and how can I grow it? I think it's really cool with PowerShell because you can be a beginner who only knows how to run uh, the first command and you can have that command saved and you can rerun it. And then once you kind of get to a better spot, you can create a function out of it, like you're mentioning. And then as your needs and your ideas for what you want out of it increase, you can expand kind of what you're doing in PowerShell. But I just love the initial return on investment is so fast. Oh, yeah. And it's so fun and interactive to just create things and be in the console typing things and like, oh, this works. Okay, I can now create a function out of this and, and reuse it later. Yeah, that's actually one of my presentations that I gave to the uh, Mississippi PowerShell user group where I, I took, and basically you take an idea. It's like, I have an idea. And most of the time when I have these kinds of random ideas that should just show up, I'm at the console. And so I'll I'll write a command. In fact, I had <laughs> I had one of my friends harassing me because I wrote a, a a command line, a console command line that was like seven or eight cycles back at 120 characters. And so it was it was long. It had at least six pipelines that it was passing data from one to the next to the next. And I was like, I wonder how far I can make this command go. And I got it working, and it was great. Problem with that is it's nearly impossible to reuse that thing. And do you really want to type something that has that many characters in it every time? No. So you wind up copying and pasting that into a PS1 file and you go, okay, here's, here's my script now. And then when you look at it, you're like, is it really a good idea to be piping all that data from this command to that command to that command? Maybe I should put it in a variable. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. Oh, wait, if I'm going to do that, instead of hard coding the path, Maybe I want the path to be a variable that I pass in with a default selection. I'm like, okay, well, I'm gonna now now I'm putting parameters onto this thing. I'm like, oh well, if I'm gonna bother with that, maybe I should write it as a function. And so the the evolution of the scripts starts from console script function, and then you get enough functions together that make sense. Then it's module, and then from there, uh, at least in my experience. Things get so, so meticulously specific by the time you've gotten to a module that it kind of, uh, how do I want to describe it? It's like before then you were like branching up and you're like branching this little tree and you're working your way up the trunk. And then when you get to that particular point, it just goes like this. Because then there's thousands of ways to, to 
get your your module to the next level? Do you do versioning? Do you do classes? Do you do um, dependencies? And the complexity at that point, you have to start really doing some uh, cost value analysis is like, all right, here's what my time is worth. Here's what I'm trying to do. And this is this is not worth it or this is worth it because it may be worth it. I think that what would be great with the whole module thing is if your organization already has like an accepted way of creating modules. Like if you have classes, they go in this specific folder. We use the same kind of modules for our building, et cetera. But if you don't have that, yeah, kind of going through that initial decision tree of what you want to use can be challenging, especially the first time. Oh yeah. And uh, what did I say? There'd be monsters there. You know, that's, there'd be dragons, I think. Yeah. There'd be, there'd be dragons. That's where, that's where the rocks are that your ship is going to have to either steer around or crash against, you know, that's, uh, I think you're right in that. It, it would be nice if organizations had that set up. Usually we're the people that are trying to bring that into an organization. Right. And then getting, getting enough uh, agreement to start with that this is a good idea. And then iterating through the process of doing that. I mean, if you're not a, a PowerShell development house, then you really have to pay attention to your, your return on investment for that kind of work. So I'm wondering if this, I have a broken mindset on this because I've never gone to the thought process like how can I improve and build on this it's I'm given a task I make the task function and then I never think about the PowerShell again generally speaking if, so I'm wondering if, if I'm missing something critical like making me less with PowerShell by not always wanting to take the next step interesting so the advice I would say on that is who's taking the task from you when you're not doing it anymore uh, usually just uh I guess runs until it's obsolete or <laughs> right. So in that case, you know, if you're doing anonymous, I mean, autonomous tasks, not anonymous, we, we all, we all knew who we know who's running it. It's you, but the autonomous task for something like that, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build something that I don't have to manage anymore. Right. So the point of the module is nothing more than to group things together so that it's easy to work with, right? So if you've got, um, let's say you're doing a lot of customization around IIS. IIS is easy. It's kind of ubiquitous, lots of Windows servers and admins, whatever. So I've got some IIS functions that I've written because I want them to do X in my environment, right? Well, once I start to get four, five, six of those, it makes sense to create an IIS module and then just keep them together, right? That's kind of the thought process. The other thought process is how do you load a function or a script into your PowerShell console session, right? So typically, if it's a script, you're looking up the file path and you're running it. You know, who wants to try to manage a tree of files? That's not exactly ideal. Like, okay, well, let's get functions because then the function command will always be available because I've loaded it and it's available to me. So you put everything in a functions directory and then you do something uh, working code is working code where you say, get child item where star.ps1, right? And then you do a for each loop on that and you say dot space 
full name for that particular object. And so you load every one of your functions in. Hey, that's great. How many functions do you have? You're again having to manage a tree, you know, file-based functions. Well, that's okay. We put them on the network. Great. What happens when the network's not available? What happens when you disconnect from said network, right? And you go home. Okay, well, th these all create problems for you. Like, okay, well, then what is the purpose of the module? The module is something that, especially if you have a location where you've got a, um, um, like a PowerShell gallery type repo, even if it's an internal repo, then you can say, all right, I want to do an install module. So now the module goes in, it goes into your profile. You don't have to have admin to load it and it'll auto load whenever you need the commands or you can put it in your, your profile to load it automatically. All these things make your life easier in PowerShell. And so that's, that's where you get the benefit from it. Did, does that kind of give you some ideas? Yeah, and it goes to, I, I talk about automation on, on a webcast a lot and it's always the, if you put in the work, like a lot of work initially, it's less work later. And it just seems to be an extension to that. Just put in the appropriate effort to start with and make it easier in the future. Right. Yeah, and I, I like think appropriate's the, relative. Oh. Sorry. No, it's fine. Um, I want to hear more about appropriate is relative. Yeah, I think appropriate is relative to how much time you've invested in your tooling, in kind of understanding how you develop modules and support modules. Um, because I think what you were saying earlier, Stephen, was that we want to be developing solutions that are maintainable, that last, you know, so we don't have to restart things from square one, develop them in a way that they are adaptable to future changes. Um, but not getting, not allowing the potential complexity that a module could have prevent us from creating something that will work for now. Um, and right. obviously, as time goes on, we always want to be growing and pushing ourselves and trying to do the best that we can. Um, but it's understanding where that is relative to where your organization is, is, is also valuable. Sure. I'll give you a classic example of that. Um, how many of us work with AD? Yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> AD is almost ubiquitous, especially if Windows, right? So the get AD commandlets are super exciting in the way that they filter. Super exciting. And by that, I'm being a little bit sar sarcastic. Right, so here's my get ad user command. And then you say, if you know their account, you just put the account next. You're like, okay, in my case, let's say I'm, it's Stephen J. All right, get ad user Stephen J. Here's your stuff. Okay, that's great. But you get the standard, I think it's six properties from that. You say, okay, well, I want the rest of them, right? So do you do properties star? Okay, that's fine. But then you don't know whose account it is, but you know the person's name was Mark. All right, so now you're in get ad user dash filter where name like Mark, except ad filter doesn't do piping and you don't wanna do where star and then pass that into where object, that's abusive to your ad uh, admins and please don't do that to them. So I was like, looking up people's names all the time because I didn't know their their IDs because, you know, people have standards, but they don't always get followed in organizations. So I wrote myself a function in order to make this faster. So it was something like find name, and then I put the name in there, and it would build the, the get AD user command for me with the filter all structured properly. And then I was like, well, 
it works a lot faster. And I don't know if anyone's noticed this, but 80 is a lot faster when you're using like and the wild card is not at the beginning, but it's at the end. So if you know the first few characters, the search is really fast. If you put a wild card at the beginning, the search is slow. It takes a long time. It's something about how AD does its filtering. So I always wanted to filter with the start at the end. I made that my default. But then I put a switch on there, which was like dash anything, so that I didn't have to rewrite my command or do anything. So now it's find user, MAR, dash anything, and it will find MAR anywhere in the name instead of it beginning with MAR. It made me faster, and that's why I did it. Nice. And I love opportunities like that um, in PowerShell, where you have a problem, you're able to solve it, you're able to learn as you go, you're able to maybe learn a bit more about how AD actually does that searching and maybe a little bit of the reasons why, and now you have a forever solution. You've understood the problem, you've created a function to get around it, and you're kind of like done with that struggle, at least in your life. And if you share that, other people can kind of get past it, but very cool. Love that kind of thing in PowerShell. Yeah. So you wouldn't have to know why with the AD commands specifically, you have to specify extra property. Because I, I learned PowerShell with Active Directory was where it all started for me. And it took a long time to work out the dash properties on other commands once I started expanding <laughs> my... So uh, the AD property, the I mean, the AD PowerShell commandlets have kind of been... a a mess since their inception. And that's just to some degree, the way it is, there's been talk about that for over a decade about why are the AD commandments the way they are. Um, but part of that is it's the filter left principle in that you want your filtering to happen as far left in your command as you can so that your results are targeted and it's easier on the system that's doing the work. Right. So if you do get ad user star and you pipe that into a variable, one, you're still not going to get all your properties because you want get ad user star dash properties star. And you're like, all right, let's pull, let's pull the entire ad down. Well, if you've got a thousand users, it's not horrible. If you've got 160,000 users, that's a terrible idea. And it's not actually going to work anyway. You're going to overload the RAM on your local system, most likely. Uh, the AD computers, the AD computer that you're connected to will time out after a little while and be like, nope. And so then you're into pagination and all kinds of foolishness. Anyway, the point is, is that you want, you want your filters to be native and you want them to be as far left as possible. So then when you're using the filter, you're constrained by not using PowerShell's filter that we're used to if you're using where, uh, but you're using the AD filters and it's uh, an LDAP specific filter system. And that's why my particular favorite uh, parameter for filtering is match because I believe in regex and I'm broken that way. But I think once you learn a little bit of regex, you can do so much more with it uh, compared to wildcards and like. So, but get AD user, there is no such thing as match. So you're stuck with either equals or like. Wow, I, I don't want to go into regex. I've learned that that's when. That, if you want to see me really angry, and and I, it's it's because I'm terrible at it. It's it's not because anything. Like I understand the power of it. Like I've seen it in use, and it's amazing. But if I go in and try to do it, it's guaranteed that something will be thrown or broken. 
I will help you. I will okay. help you with a very simple tip. Every time you do like on the where object, use match instead. Okay. Okay. So here's your example. Um, I'm going to list a bunch of files, and I want it where the file name starts with A. So if you're going to do that, you're going to do get child item, pipe that into where, and then you'll say name dash like, and then usually quotes, right? A star. Simple, right? Yep. In regex, it's the exact same thing, except when you go to where, you do dash match, and you do caret A. And the caret says, start at the beginning. Okay. That's it. It's a, it's a beginning placeholder, right? Simple. So now, now when you're doing your where's, just start doing match and see what your results are. And then when things aren't working the way you think they should, like let's say you want something with the word um, or a date in the file name, and you don't know where the date's going to be. It's either going to be in the middle, it's going to be at the end, and we'll pick today's date. So it'll be 11-16-2022. So it's those numbers in a row. When you pack it into your where and you do dash match, you just put those numbers in. Because regex will find it in the middle, at the beginning, at the end, unless you put the anchors in place. You don't have to put star numbers star. That's just how regex works. I think that knowing regex is a big improvement to things. Like if your team has someone or doesn't, there's a difference there. And when you're doing PowerShell, what it can empower you to interact with and filter and sort and manipulate is just really quite powerful. Uh, it's hard to kind of just say, oh, really quite powerful, but it's it's its own thing, regular expressions. It's beyond just using it in PowerShell. Uh, a lot of time has been invested and there's all kinds of cool stuff within regular expressions. Yep. Yeah, and even though I'm familiar with regex and I like regex, uh, regex101.com, I wear that website out because, and Google search, like, hey, I need to know how to do this. There's something about the look ahead and look behind that is just, it's challenging to get the syntax right. And if you're not doing it every day, all the time, you're like, wait, I don't, I don't get this. Um, named groups, you know, where you're doing particular capture groups. That stuff is, it's challenging. But once you understand it, then you can do super awesome things. Like, for example, you can do regex search in Visual Studio Code. I use this all the time in my PowerShell when I'll get a big old file, whatever, and I either need to format it or I need to change something in there. Um, in fact, one of the things I use it for is to turn a really long command on one line into a splatted command. And I can do regex search and replace the text with a splat. Now, of course, there's utilities that do that, but I don't have them. So I'm using the tools native built in. Uh, something in digital security terms is called living off the land. It's like, you know, it's already there. And oh, is that from last week? You got that from the last uh, guest, right? So the whole living off the land principle is the regex search and replace is already baked into how VS Code works. So once you understand it, you can use it to do some really powerful um, replaces in, in PowerShell. And using the capture groups means that you can, you can do replaces and what it finds, it'll replace it with what it found. It's great. I love it. 
So, and you you mentioned the like when you're querying or googling, and that's where I think most of my aggravation comes from because I never feel like I get the the community's not interested in answering the question I ask. They're interested in answering what they think I want. So I'll say, mm-hmm. how do I do this specific thing? And the first four answers would be like, oh, what what you should do and is be searching for this instead. Where it'd be more helpful to me to if they answer the question and say, but here is a better alternative. Because that way I can go in and see the results of what I was looking for and then learn from it. But instead I'm getting five different ways to do something where I can't even figure out to do it the basic way. Yes. Um, welcome, welcome to Google Foo 101, right? It's one, did anyone, has anyone else in the universe ever run into the problem that you've run into? Two, did they write it down in, in a way that you can go find it in a place where you can find it? Three, does it have enough buzzwords in it that the, you're basically Google bombed and you're not ever going to find it? Thank you, Microsoft Access. <laughs> Thank you, Microsoft DevOps. What is it with Microsoft and their, their naming of products, man? Good grief. Like, seriously. So you're trying to, like, I picked on Microsoft Access, but it's like, hey, I want to do blah in Microsoft Access. Well, access is a verb in the English language, and it does something. You're like, I'm trying to access this, and I'm trying to access that. It's nearly impossible to find answers in that. You're so right. I feel like so many people who've been working with Microsoft for a while really relate to you talking about their naming practices. Let's not even get into the renaming practices because that's a whole other thing that I'll keep you on your toes. And this career is all about learning. Oh my gosh. And, and yeah. questioning yourself time. If you got the right name, old name. Last time I had regex, it was a friend of mine that had recently retired. It was looking for help with some PowerShell and it required some regex in there. And as in there, we got to that part and I was trying to find the answer. And I, every time I found a link that looked promising, the answer was never, here's what he wants. It's like, no, you're doing it the wrong way. And I feel bad. I'm glad he's retired because he has plenty of time to cool off. But I lost <laughs> my temper so bad, my wife came downstairs to make sure I was okay. I, <laughs> and I, I just feel that way every time. Oh, man. I, I know what your problem is, Jordan. You're, you're using the wrong engine. You're using Rajex. Oh, that's it. There we and, go. Yeah, you, you need to <laughs> You need to use regex. It's oh. it'll be much more stable and calm for you. Yeah, I, I think you hit on the the actual problem is I know so little about it as I can't even do a proper Google search for it. I, I need to get to the point where at least I can research what I want. So again, my advice is one, replace like with match in your where commands, and you'll start to get comfortable with the most basic of regex, which is how do I search for things? And what's the right syntax? And it what characters innocent. Looks are so special? Clean and pure. What's that? It's, it always starts off so innocent, looks so clean and pure. It's when you want oh. to go past that point. It's like, gotcha. Yes. yes. <laughs> right. But then you can do things like, here, here's something you cannot do in a like command easily. Give me all the files that start with A or B. It's a pipe, right? So it'd be carrot A pipe B. Did I get it? Unfortunately, no. Uh, no. Uh, no. So the, so the carrot uh, and pipe. So and, and I don't want to get too technical with regex. This isn't this isn't a regex tutorial. But what you do is you say um, carrot, which is the beginning. So you were right on that. But then you do the square brackets 
around a series of characters that you want. Mm-hmm. In that case, it would be A, then B. Right. Oh, and if you it... want to range, you could do A dash C. So then it would be all the files that start with A, B, or C. Okay. It pipes like an or statement, right? Basically. Right. Right. And those are generally in capture groups. So you do the parentheses and then you do what you want first, pipe, and then what you want next. And you can pipe, pipe, pipe through those in a capture group. Yeah. Whenever I learned regex, I kind of had to go through it and like kind of get a feel for, oh, there's this like magic wand thing. There's carrots, there's capture groups, there's all this stuff. Um, there was actually a, a talk, a PowerShell related talk by Thomas Rayner called regex for noobs. It's oh, yeah. on YouTube and in the show notes that kind of does a decent job at exploring like the slash and the carrot and some of these other things to where you don't have to memorize them all. But like if you were kind of aware of what's out there, it makes it a lot easier to decipher the regex that you may run into across the web or from like regex101.com. Yep. Well, and uh, James Brendage has like a module to help build queries and I couldn't even yeah. grasp that. So, <laughs> well, okay. So, on that one, James has done a lot of work and he is highly skilled in this. So, if you're in there looking at the code and you're trying to figure out how this thing works, that's not a place for people who are trying to learn regex to get started. Now, if you're just using it and you're not trying to understand it, then yeah, it'll get you across. But, um, you know, notwithstanding his excellent work on that module, which I just, I think is excellent. Um, I don't know that I would send people there to start with. Like I'm telling you, uh, start with the match parameter, get a feel for it and wear out regex 101. You can go into regex 101. It has a little bar where you can put your regex in and then it's got a text location below that where you can put sample text to see whether or not it's actually going to find what it is you're looking for. And then also on the side pane, it has an explanation for what you've put in to the regex bar. So if you do something like caret A over the, over on the side, it'll say, it'll show the caret character and it'll say, must begin with, and then anything that has A. And so then you can put a list of words into the text bar box and it'll show you whether or not it works. And I use that all the time when I'm troubleshooting or trying to get my regex to work. Okay, I'll uh, I'll start learning. I'll I'll do better. I'll report back to you. All right, uh, uh, I will be your first third returning guest, and I will come <laughs> check on you and and see how you're doing. It'll just be depression. We should probably okay. get off regex because yeah. some people are like, okay, oh, I got a question for that. <laughs> So we kind of highlighted something here that I think is interesting, and I don't know if you'll have a great answer because it's kind of a, a slippery thing, but you kind of brought something to my mind, which was when you're developing a module or some kind of thing to solve a problem, a function, in doing that, you come to understand the technology that you're building a function for. So like in your example earlier with the find AD user thing, you're understanding how the... Um, LDAP queries are formed and you're kind of then kind of reconstructing it. And then you have a function that you understand the reasoning why, you understand how it works. Um, But then maybe someone down the road who just receives that tool that has solved the problem, when you abstract it kind of sort of thing, it's hard for them to understand all the decisions or maybe there's other confusion um, that kind of comes along. And I think that with the regex module you guys were just talking about, that kind of brings it to question as well. Like the person who develops the module has a full understanding. And, and, but when you add that abstraction, there can be confusion. Um, what do you make of that? Should everyone develop their own modules? Should 
they use ready-made modules and kind of spend the time to understand it? Should people do better documentation? What's up with this kind of situation? That is a that's a great way to kind of get your mindset about what what it is you're trying to do and how you're trying to drive your your PowerShell knowledge and your career forward, right? Is if you don't understand what's happening and you're using a tool that works with whatever whatever the situation is, right? If you don't understand what's happening behind it, then it's going to be hard in order for you to either improve upon it or troubleshoot it. And we're usually in, uh, most technology people are either building new tools in order to do new things, or they're troubleshooting existing tools to find out why they are or are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's really the two tracks. And you can be in both tracks at the same time. It's not an either or scenario. That's typically what you wind up doing. So I'm going to give you an example of HTTP. If you are using a browser, you're using HTTP. You're using HTTP protocol. You're also winding up using TCP IP. Everything's great as long as your website loads in your browser and everything's fine. But if you're a desktop support person or you're an application support person or you're a network support person or you're a whatever the fill-in-the-blank support person and someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm trying to get to said web page and I'm not getting the results I think I should get. If you don't understand any of the mechanisms behind the browser page, then you're kind of relegated to pressing F5 and or loading it on another system. And then you get the classic dreaded, it works for me, right? Uh, yeah, it, it works for you. You're on another machine or you're in another data center or you're on another network. None of those things are the same. So why does it work for you and it doesn't work for this person? And in order to figure that out, you really need to have a kind of an understanding of how networks work and how HTTP works. So let's bring that back to PowerShell. If you're using a module and that module is working for you, especially if you're using a module that someone else wrote that sits on top of other modules, you may not understand what's happening behind it. But if you ever want to make some adjustments or if you say, hey, I need this thing's not quite doing exactly what I want to do, or maybe I'm tired of having to enter in this parameter content every time, I want it to default to what I want. So you can either modify the original one or you can write your own module which calls that or your own function, which calls that function and has a default value in a parameter, but also allows you to set a value in that parameter, right? And so then you want to kind of look at the code and you want to say, okay, well, in this code, if I go look at someone else's code, what parameters are available to me? Did they get fancy and use something like parameter set so that I need to know which ones are the default parameter set and which ones are the available parameter sets? Because if I'm going to write a function for myself, I'm going to have to decide whether I want to be able to split across those parameter sets myself. Something else you can learn from that is maybe you don't want to do that, but you just want to know about it. You want to understand how it's working. So as long as the, the commandlet or the function or the modules are not compiled DLLs, you can do um, git command and... Um, put in the command that you want and pipe it to where, or let's see, it's, I, I like to use for each because it's faster. So if you pipe to the percent character, which is shortcut for for each, and then do script block, it will list you the script block. Or you can do select star and you can just read and go find the script block. 
right? And then you just look at the code. Well, after I type, you know, show me the script block, what I like to do is I pipe that to set clipboard or SCB for short. And by the way, when I'm at the command line, I shortcut like a maniac. I will alias the tar out of everything, right? So I'm I'm doing GC space, my command, pipe, percent, script block, pipe, SCB, enter. And so they'll take that script block and I'll put it in your clipboard and then I'll paste it into VS Code so that I can then look at this code and see what it's doing. Okay, so it sounds like you start with the git command command to like return whatever function you're looking for, right? And then that object has a property on it called the script block or the definition. Is that right? Yes. Okay, and then that contains the actual code that the function runs. Okay, yes. and that works well if they are functions, but I think if they're like written, you know, PowerShell commandlets, uh, they will not have that. But if it's a function developed in a, in a regular module that you'll often see, it'll have some great information there for you. Right. So if it's compiled into a DLL, you can't see the code. And that is exactly why they compile things into DLL, because they'll have intellectual property or... Uh, you know, patented methods of whatever, whatever, and they don't they don't want to expose that. But you know, generally speaking, most functions that you get, you'll be able to look at the the code. Uh, a fun way to do that is to to take something like your prompt function. So you can do the prompt function and just go see what the code is for that. I'll, so I want to jump in on something you said there, which is when you're saying get commands like how do you find out things for people that are getting started with PowerShell I know we've gone deep a little bit but I want to want to bring that back to to make sure we include everyone who might be listening this is what I call the tripod so the the commandlets that you need to know for sure and start using uh, when you're trying to find out information one is get command get command will tell you what commandlets functions you have available and are loaded. And then when after get command is get help. Because get help, and you know, some people may argue about the order of things, but I need I want to know what I have available to me and then use get help in order to figure out how to use that command. And one of the things that I try to do when I'm writing my functions and modules is I want to make sure that if I have a parameter then there's a help example showing you how to use that parameter. To me, there's nothing more frustrating than you go to get help on a command and the command, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to pick on them, but the, the Azure commandlets are somewhat notorious for this and they'll have 50 parameters on there. And then you go to the examples and there's three examples. One is you just entering the command by itself and then there's one with this this parameter and the one with these two parameters. You're like, great. Now I've got 48 other ones that I don't know how to use and I don't have any documentation for. So I always try to make sure that I've got all the parameters in uh, in the help block so that when you do get help, you understand what each of them does. And then the third one on the tripod is, so we've got get command, get help, and then get member. And get member, I think, some people just forget about it. And they're like, that's eh, not that big a deal. But it'll tell you all you need to know about the returning object, what 
parameters it has, I mean, excuse me, what properties it has, what methods it has, you know, whether, whether it's a built-in, uh, built-in property or is it a note property? So like if you do um, get process, the get process has a bunch of aliases so that it can put them real short in a little real tight grid or excuse me, table into your console. But you may not know what all those one letter or two letter titles are for that. So those are all, you know, alias properties, if I remember correctly. I was like, get member for, it'll, it'll help you know if the results you have are the right object type to pipe into a different command if you get command over there. Yes. Yes, super helpful. And I think these are definitely worth highlighting because if you're newer to PowerShell, navigating these initially can be challenging. So take the advice, refer back to these commands, use them early and often. If you don't understand their exact usage or how they'd be beneficial, dive into it because they are so beneficial and really quite critical to success using PowerShell regularly. Yep, I agree. Well, to circle back... Um, well, going actually, back to regex? No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. Speaking of regex... <laughs> When did you learn regex and how long has it been in your kind of working memory? That long mm. timer? Because I know you've been in IT for how long? Um, I, I'm not sure that you're allowed to ask me that question. That's how long I've been in it. Uh, actually, I was thinking about that. I've, it's almost 30 years. So I started my IT career in 93. And so I'm... That's when I was born. So awesome. 29 years into it. And I started, I started at the help desk doing phone support and i got that job because i was good with computers and i was already answering everyone's questions on the floor and the the supervisor over the help desk kind of asked me to stop answering everyone's questions because they needed their metrics for their phone support they're like if you're answering all the questions we don't know what questions there are out there and we don't have any metrics on the calls i'm like yeah, fair enough. So they offered me a job. And so I... Then they get your metrics. I was able to give them their metrics. <laughs> and then, so I went from phone support to desktop support, uh, desktop support to server type work, server type work to network type work, network to media, media to web. Uh from web to um, workflow and BI and then on to cloud. And now at somewhere, you're asking me, when did I learn regex? Somewhere in the middle of all that mess, um, I discovered that there were certain things you could do with regex that you just couldn't do anywhere else. And it was through PowerShell. Um, I know developers use regex because it's super useful when they're parsing content from um, or doing user input validation. Regex is great for that. Um, if you really want to have your mind blown up on regex, go read the, the actual RFC for what is an allowed email address and then try to write a regex for that stupidity because it's, it's nutso. Everyone's used to my name at this place, but the actual RFC and all the exceptions and all the things it'll allow you to do, 
disastrous for trying to get an actual regex which covers the full RFC. Now, I've caveated myself to death in that, right? But I tried to do it one time, and I, I, um, I switched over to regex pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be adopting Ragex in the future because I know every time I'll be there. Yep. What was it like? Uh, this is kind of an interesting question, I guess, that comes from the different generations. But I've always had like easy access to answers on the internet and things. There's always been like kind of active communities that I could quickly search things and get a starting kind of run at a problem. What was it like learning these kinds of technologies? And when the internet was a little bit different, like what resources were you relying on? Was it harder? So the answers came a lot slower and with a lot more research, first of all. And second of all, we had books, you know, these, these things that we don't, uh, you know, we didn't have the magic box with us to, to pull out and, you know, have the world's information at our fingertips. Um, when I bought my first computer, I was still in college and it came with manuals. And um, that particular summer, I was working a night job um, and my parents had just moved to a new town. So I had no friends. I had a night job, whereas most of my peers had day jobs. So I was working nights, they were working days. I was asleep when they were awake. And uh, being, I was like, well, it's just one summer, so whatever. And uh, I read all the manuals. That's how I got good at stuff is I read the manuals. And that actually helped me a lot because it kind of got me my, my actual job at the, the help desk because I knew the ins and outs of the programs that they were using because I happened to have them and I'd read the manuals. So that allowed me to do a lot of things with Excel as well. When I finished out my last year of my business degree, I did stuff in Excel that that I don't know that any of my classmates even knew how to do, but I was the guy who read the function manual from cover to cover and read what all the functions did. And so then when I'm in statistics class, I'm like, yeah, Excel can chart that. So, so I, I used it. I don't know if I appreciate you making up words like books. What what are they <laughs> what were they like uh putting ink on trees or something? Yeah, right. I think that you highlight yeah. a great point though. Because in my career, you know, I, I mentioned like having access to the internet and stuff. And I almost feel like it was sort of a golden handcuff because uh, for where I was in my career, I could get the quick answers to the immediate kind of issue I was dealing with and make the customer happy. But I wasn't able to kind of understand the bigger context or to go back to what we were talking about earlier. Maybe I used the tool that solved it, but I had no clue about the technology underneath or the fact that there was a specification I could read that kind of defines how this stuff should work. And once I guess kind of intertimed with PowerShell when I had to start actually reading to understand things and being able to see behind the scenes a little bit. I was able to just, everything was a bit easier because I wasn't just kind of working in this black box of confusion. You know, re taking the time to read through things and understand, and especially I think as time goes on, more and more care and effort is being placed into the documentation and resources that are available. Um, yep. Yeah, it, I mean, along that lines, like computers are really... I mean, they do exactly what we tell them to do. And sometimes what we tell them to do is not a good idea or doesn't actually work, right? But they do exactly what they're designed to do and they do exactly what we told them to do. So when you're when you're looking at something like, like my most recent role as um, enterprise messaging specialist, one of the things that, 
you can do with email is you can send and receive email completely at a uh, terminal prompt. You know, you, if you enter the right commands in the right order, in the right exact specification, you can send and receive email and you can see all the traffic. Now, when you're using Outlook or the email client on your phone, all of that is abstracted away from you. But if you need to know whether or not you can reach a web server or not, sometimes you need to go straight to the terminal and ask it, hey, are you there? And if it responds back that, hey, I'm here, you know, you're sending it an LO command and it says, yeah, I'm there. Then, then you understand some of the, okay, well, at least I've got the basis, basic level of communication here set up and that I can actually talk to this web, this mail server. And then you start reading the headers and you're like, okay, well, behind each message, it tells you a lot of where all it went, how it got to you, what the originating server was, can you trust it? And so that's where you get into things like uh, SPF records and uh, DKIM signing and DMARC records. And so now you're getting into DNS and all this, all this technology is in place to keep people from basically being able to spoof addresses because you don't, you don't want someone to be able to send as an executive of a company from a mail server that's not that company, right? That's how fraud gets perpetrated or phishing schemes get launched. Good message. I used to be an exchange admin. And one thing I learned, it doesn't matter what's broken. It'll always come from the customer as emails down. Emails down. It, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a network issue. It could be a computer issue. It's going to go to the help desk as email is down. And help desk will try to use that to escalate to you without doing any troubleshooting. At least that was my experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, my experience was that our, our first level support was really good. And then we had a second level support and they were also quite good. And so by the time it got to us, it was stump the chump territory. It was, uh, or they didn't have access to do what it was they were trying to do, or they didn't know how to do what it was they were trying to do. Because there's a certain level of access you just, you don't want to give out to, to people. And you're like, hey, we don't, we don't want everybody in the organization to be able to create or delegate access to mailboxes. Okay, that makes sense. So you give a certain subset of people, okay, we trust you with this. Try not to abuse it, because if you do, we're going to take it away from you. So I instituted a policy that it had to have a line, did Outlook Web Access work? And if that wasn't answered, I'd reject the ticket instantly, because that means they didn't even look past, like, even the basics. I had to institute that, because I had so many times where you come to me, I go digging into the back end of things, like, everything's fine. It turns out that their Outlook wasn't work there uh, with the PST file. Oh yeah, is is ten gigs? <laughs> All right. Oh yeah. But that's that's kind of how you kind of see you kind of see what people's mindset is. You know, like if and it's also a philosophy thing uh, from leadership in a group, right? So if your help desk, the thing I liked about that my help desk experience is we were empowered to do everything we could to solve the problem. Not all help desks are like that. Some help desks are, you're measured by how quickly you get a call in and get to the next one, right? And so those are diametrically opposed because you may need to take some time if you're trying to solve the problem in order to figure out what the problem is. 
versus, hey, we want to just get the person in, get a ticket and get the heck out of here and get to the next call. Right. So you have to work within whatever the philosophy is of the group. In your particular instance, like you mentioned, you're like, hey, it would be nice if you would try Outlook Web Access. The other thing that I've advised people to do when they're they're having some odd problem that we can't seem to like narrow down, I say, have you tried this on a VDI? Now, of course, this assumes that your organization has VDIs available. Uh, one of my previous ones did. I would say, try it on the VDI. If it's, If you're having the same problem on your PC and on the VDI, then we know it has something to do with your account. If it's on your PC, but not on the VDI, then we know it's something to do with your PC. And it's just, you know, troubleshooting 101 is trying to eliminate the variables so that you can get to what the root cause is. Yeah. When I was providing that help desk service or was in charge of it, I really enjoyed having an ability to control the manner that they input tickets outside of email. Cause you can kind of configure some automation. You can make certain pop-up or like questions like, have you, is this affecting your email? Have you tried OWA? Have you, you know, kind of eliminate that uh, drift in of tickets as much as sure. possible. Yep. Um, so I think that something you highlighted earlier was like with security and with administration, and I think our previous guest kind of mentioned it as well, it is very helpful to understand the protocol and technologies that you're working with. Um, once you know how things should work and you kind of have read the spec or have a decent understanding of things, and you know the tools that are available uh, to you to troubleshoot, to interact with, uh, everything kind of starts to kind of make sense. And things that maybe would have been too technical, too confusing to understand, you now have the ability to interact with it. It's not this abstract black box. It has, it works a certain way. You can check to ensure that it's working a certain way. And um, whenever you can kind of go through that, you have a much understand, better understanding of the systems at play. And I feel like the more that we can do of that, the better, especially where security is concerned. Because how are we supposed to administer, securely administer technologies that we're responsible for if we don't really understand what they're doing or why the certain things exist within it and the role that they may play. Yeah, that's, that is very true. Uh, if you've spent any time doing any work on digital security, there's, there's, uh, what's the phrase, 10 ways to Sunday to ways to, to abuse how something should work. And, you know, that's like, a, here's a classic example of it. Um, Someone has a website, and on that website, you have to be um, you have to be a certain IP or a certain whatever in order to get the submit button. Let's assume it's that. Well, if they're if they didn't write their application properly and they're doing backend validation, but they're doing it on the form, well, you can just press F12 and go into the developer tools on your browser and just knock that little bit of code out on your browser and boop, oh, now all of a sudden your, your button's available to you. Like submit, see, gotcha, gotcha. But if you don't understand what's happening behind the scenes and, you know, maybe a junior developer or someone just stole some code off of, um, you know, Google search and said, okay, here, this'll do what I'm trying to do. And no one bothered to check it or vet it. You didn't have someone with experience. You know, that's, that's how things get exposed. And it's not possible for everyone to know everything. That's why you need to have some, some levels of checks and controls and, and tests and whatever. And then, you know, that's why companies pay 
uh, highly skilled people to come in and hack away on their on their networks and their products to see whether or not they can punch holes in it and why bug bounties exist. When did you first get interested in security? Um, have you worked in security specifically or just administered things with a heavy focus on security? So my security mindset started, um, oh man, back in the early 2000s, like the year 2000, because I was working for a company that we were doing streaming media on the internet all the way back in 2000. And uh, we didn't want people to be abusing our systems or abusing our streams or our websites. And so kind of, you kind of start with that mindset at that point. Um, but I wasn't officially into digital security until I'm trying to remember, I think it was 2019 is when I officially got a job in the digital security space. And so that's, that's when, you know, once you once you go from hey I'm supporting all these applications and then by the way security is important to me to now I'm doing security full time and I'm I'm looking for things to to fix and to protect against that's that's where you really bring your your focus into place. Yeah. So I, I've noticed with uh, people that their focus is security, uh, they always feel like. Uh, a mother's disappointed in their children. Like, oh, why would you do that? Like, <laughs> every time you click on a bad link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a little bit of that. Uh, some a conversation I had with someone many years back now when it kind of dawned on me. Um, okay, we got Andrew back. One of the things that that dawned on me um, is that life. And everything associated with it is a continuum, right? It's you start at a place and you move until you're at a different place, right? Everyone's on this journey and no one's journey is the same and no one's in the same place. So by the time you've gotten um, battle scars and gray hairs and et cetera, you know, you've, you've been through some stuff, you've seen some stuff, right? And, uh, you know, maybe we can talk about some of that um, on this podcast, but other people haven't had that. They haven't had your experience. They haven't been through your battles. They haven't had your education. Theirs is different. There's maybe better in some places and worse in others. So you kind of need to give some grace to somebody who fundamentally doesn't understand what it is your technology is doing. I'm going to pick on multi-factor authentication for a second. If someone doesn't understand why their phone chirps at them to authorize a sign-in, then when it happens at eight o'clock at night when they're at home, they're not going to know necessarily that they shouldn't do that. They may think their PC at work is still doing something and they just need to swipe. So they do. And now someone in some undesirable country, I won't name names, has your login because you just authorized it. And now that they're in, uh, it's an unfortunate reality that the typical exploit, and I may get the statistics wrong, so don't, don't quote me, but someone who's broken into a network is usually in there for 120 days before they get noticed. That's the average. 
Makes sense. There's a lot of ways to to hide what you're doing. If you're good enough to get in there, you're good enough to hide your tracks a little bit. Yep. Yep. So, you know, someone gets, but it goes back to the, I don't understand why my phone asks me to swipe. If you don't understand why, then when your phone asks you to swipe, you may swipe at a, at an inappropriate time because you weren't doing it. Right. So is it training? Is it understanding? Sure. But we're asking, we're asking everyone in an organization from top to bottom to understand what MFA is. And that may be a, if you're working in a technology company, like I used to, you know, that's expected. That's, you know, baseline. This is entry level. We under, we expect you to understand this. But if you're working at a mom and pop or a consumer goods kind of location and you try to, you just throw this out without any explanation, they're not going to get that. I, I, I don't consider myself bad at security, but it's still so easy to get cut up. Like last week's episode with I am Jacoby, I was doing research on them just so I could have questions and I could keep a, a conversation going. And I ended up, there's a website, imjacoby.com, which is his, but he built it specifically as, you know, a test for his red team thing to see who goes there. So I walked right into it and I was just trying to find information. Which, well, I think it hosted payloads. So you would have to download and execute the commands that were hosted there, I think. Yeah, I would have had to run something was in there, but I still ended up at a website where I shouldn't have been. And all I was trying to do was find information so I could carry a conversation. Right. Sure. <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I, I didn't get hacked. Thank goodness. But um, visualstudio.com. Back in the day, you go to visualstudio.com. And that would take you to Microsoft's blah, blah, blah. And so I'm presenting in front of 20 interns at my organization. And I'm showing them some stuff about PowerShell and how you, you do this and that, whatever. And I go, and... You know, you can do a whole CI/CD pipeline. And so I did Visual Studio, except with an extra N, dot com. I got a pop-up spree and a bunch of ads. Just brrr, thankfully, none of it was, you know, adult material. That would have been super embarrassing. And I was presenting, so it was showing up. And I was like, whoa, first thing I did, reach up, unplug the display cable. You know, and they're all cracking up laughing. And I was like, okay, first of all, why didn't our web filter software catch this? Because we had, you know, software in between everyone's request that blocks bad sites. So we had adult site banning and all this stuff. But the very fact that I just did an extra in, because I was so used to T-I-O-N as a word in English, shun, shun, shun. You know, you type it all the time. So I just typed that in without even thinking of it. I learned two important things from that. One, save your uh, links that you're going to do and click on them whenever you're doing presentations. Do not type into the browser address bar. That's rule number one. Rule number two is everyone makes mistakes and some of it's embarrassing and you just got to laugh that junk off because darn it, that was funny. <laughs> Yep. Humans are going to human. Mistakes will get through. For sure. Uh, I think that with the MFA example, it, it highlights how important communication is and education. But, um, you know, we focus on technology so often, but to make a lot of changes, to change culture, to get new processes implemented, it requires us to be communicators and to rely on those more kind of human side of us 
rather than just the technical problem solvers. Yep. And, you know, back to my everyone's on a journey comment, it's like you have to tailor your messages to your audiences, right? Like if you're bringing in someone who's, you know, let's say they're fresh out of college and they have a computer science degree, that's great. But they may not have any practical experience at your organization, much less any organization. So they're not going to they're not going to know that there's certain policies and procedures like how many college students have done change control. Is that is that a thing in college? I don't know, because most of them show up and they know nothing about change control. But you say, hey, you can't just launch new code to production directly. You have to explain what you're doing before that. Right. That's what change control is about. Or if you're a fully automated, integrated site, um, then, you know, you have to have you have to have someone do a code review. There again, we're talking back to communication and culture because you don't want your code review to be rubber stamp. Oh, Steven's sending code approved. Oh, Jordan's sending code approved. If you're not looking at that code and you don't have a culture that says you're responsible for everything that you approve, not only is the person who wrote it responsible, but more importantly, the person who approves it is responsible. Then you're like, oh, well, if I'm approving it, I'm reading this code. And if I read the code and I see something I don't understand, you do not click approve. You go back and you try to figure out what that is because that's where the exploits come from. Or not even necessarily exploit. It could just be a catastrophic event on your enterprise. Like, hey, I just deleted 100 servers in production. I didn't realize that that would happen. Oops. Yikes. So I was just giggling at the do colleges didn't teach that because like three months after I graduated college, they lost their accreditation. So I have no idea what an actual college does. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it happens. It turns out it doesn't matter that they were accredited when I got the degree. That doesn't mean anything. Well, you know, to, to some degree, if, if you spent time studying the material and you learned it, that's what matters, right? I don't have a computer science degree. I'm just good with computers. Computers make sense to me. The ideas make sense. And, you know, the big key is, can you learn? Do you understand how to learn? Knowing how to learn is actually more, possibly more important than what you already know. Because if you can't learn new skills and adapt and, and be flexible and be creative with those tools, then you're, you're locked into what someone else has already built for you as a path. And that's, that's not, to me, that's not as effective as a career as someone who has a hunger for learning and is willing to share what they learned and doesn't, doesn't worry about, oh, I, I should already know this. Like, yeah, you haven't been exposed to it. It's okay. But here's what our expectation is. Our expectation is that you're going to learn it and you're going to put the effort in. And so then when you do that, you're like, okay, all right, moving on. Yeah. I, I think that knowing how to learn and specifically how you as an individual learn, because we're all different, right? And working on that skill as your career goes on is so important. And having confidence, like, you know, spending time with that learning new stuff and having confidence in your ability to learn new skills and learn new technologies uh, is going to do a lot for your psychological safety as you get new roles and learn new things. Like just understanding that you're not going to know it all and you're going to have to continually rely on learning new things and uh, absorbing that knowledge. Yep. 
Yeah, the thing the thing that I've learned from that is one you have you kind of have to monitor your fatigue level, you know, because trying to relearn yourself every year is it's hard, it's tough, and I've done that uh, effectively for the past five years. Every year for the past five years, I've taken on a new role and I've learned new skills, substantial skills. Like, um, you know, I was a analytics administrator for a very short period of time until I got reorged out of that. I've done cloud architecture and automation, and I moved into digital security. And I did, um, I did enterprise messaging most recently. And I think before I did that. The uh, analytics was, I'm trying to recall, uh, oh yeah, uh, DevOps automation. So any one, pick one, that's an excellent career for you to get into and stay with for multiple years, uh, you know, even a decade, and you can do very well. I did all of those in five years. Wow. It's kind of brutal. It's a robust skill set, though. <laughs> Yeah, so my skill set. Um, I had a former former boss say, "Your your skill set is that you're both deep and wide. So I can go deep into something, you know, really get into the technical details of it, but I can also go wide. And it just happens to be my particular experience and history and expertise and interests that that allowed me to do that. Not everyone wants to." For sure, some people like to be experts, and not everyone can do that. I can't go deep on anything, so uh, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll combine, and then uh, between the two of us, we'll we'll still just be deep and wide. I'll just be you know there. Well, we'll be we'll be deeper and wider, right? <laughs> you know, because you know, there's the truth is is that people know things, and their expertise or their ability is not yours. And so if you're on the lookout for that, you can you can find someone who can help you or solve your problem, even though, let's say, you know, I, as much as I hate this term, 10x engineer, there's some somebody who's really good, like really good, right? And you know them, but you know this one thing they don't know. Like I have I have a friend, uh, when we were in college, he is by far the smartest person I've ever met. It's incredible. He read at, I think he said he read at 1,600 words a minute. He just ran his hand down the page and flipped the page. That's how fast he read. Um, brilliant person. When um, when we were we were actually in Europe together at the same time, he couldn't tell directions worth a flip. It was pretty hilarious to me. It was like his kryptonite. So when we needed to get somewhere, this was the person who got us there, right? <laughs> you know, I was the map guy and I could get us there because my sense of direction was really good and I could read maps and whatever. And that wasn't a thing he could, he did. Now, things may have changed, but I used to tease him about it because we seemed, if we were following him, we were lost. If we were following me, we got to where we wanted. And he, he got a new car while we were still in college and it had a compass in it. I was like, oh, sweet. This is long before GPS. I was like, oh, you got a compass. He's like, yeah, it's going to help me find my way. <laughs> but, and, but, you know, on, on every other metric in the world, this guy is, is smarter and better than me at, at stinking everything, right? 
But, you know, that didn't mean that we couldn't be friends and that I couldn't add some value to him. So you take that, that's my personal anecdote. You take that to business, people have skills, people have aptitudes, people can do things. And if you're on the lookout for it, you're, you're going to find it. And uh, you can, you can either work with them to, to grow that expertise or, you know, engage them. And then they're going to really add value to your organization or your project or your team because you're putting them in a place where they can succeed. Yeah, I think that it's a great thing to highlight. We all have differences. Comparing ourselves one-to-one to each other is typically a losing battle. Um, and teams that have diverse skills and talents and perspectives are often better suited to solve problems. Um, so if you're just comparing, you're saying, oh, I'm not the best at so and at so-and-so technology on my team compared to so-and-so, well, your team is still better off for having you and you know you bring your own value in different ways. For sure. That actually is something that I was hoping we'd get to on the, the podcast because that's, you know, when it comes to what are you doing with your career and what are you doing for other people's careers, you know, I'm at the, I'm at the stage of my career where I've done some, I've done some really cool things, but I'm, I'm wanting to, I'm wanting to help other people as much as I'm wanting to grow on my own terms. And so, you know, along with that, it's, it's, when people ask me, they're like, well, what can I do to get better? And I go, who do you hang out with? Who are the people that you're talking to? It's like, if, if the only people that you're, you're dealing with are people that aren't as good as you, you may start to think that you're better than you might actually be. And it might actually impede your growth. But at the same time, if the only people you hang out with are all people better than you, you may start to feel inferior and struggle with your own personal growth, right? So you kind of have to, you need both. You need the people that behind you that you're pulling up with you and you're saying, hey, I've blazed this path. I know what to do. I can help you. Let me show you what I've learned over time. But then you also need the people that are ahead of you so that you can keep your eye on them and say, that's what I'm striving for. I want to be, I want to be as knowledgeable as them or as skilled at them. What what is the thing you're you're trying to get better at? So it's almost like a mentor-mentee thing where you get someone ahead of you and you get someone behind you. So you're helping someone and someone else is helping you. And that skill range, you know, I said deep and wide. That doesn't mean that I know everything and can cover everything. Absolutely not. And, you know, I was talking with one of my former former bosses. And I'm like, man, I just, just don't feel like I'm getting this. I don't understand it. I'm not at whatever, whatever. And he looked at me and he says, look at the circles that you're running in. And I went, okay, what, what do you mean? He goes, who are you hanging out with? What are they talking about? What kind of people are they? And I'm like, well, they're all kind of leaders in this space. He goes, right. You're trying to measure yourself against the top tier people. You're not measuring yourself against your peers or the people that aren't at your level yet. And I was like, hmm, okay, maybe I, sh- maybe I should pay a little more attention to that. A little skewed perspective, yeah. I think that that's something that PowerShell is so great about this community embracing, which is learning by teaching, You know, encouraging you to wherever you are, teach, blog, 
speak at conferences. You don't have to be solving the world's uh, hardest problems to be saying something valuable that can help others. And in that process of helping others, you really solidify and gain confidence and keep your own momentum going um, so you can reach whatever level or wherever you're trying to go with your career. Agree. Now, you mentioned five years, one new job every year. Um, what's next for you? Are you currently looking for work? Are you looking for management type stuff? Are you looking for a new challenging technical thing or what? It's it, uh, it's funny that you bring that up because I'm one of the the eleven thousand that got let go from Meta, and you know I know I know you know that, and I appreciate you giving me a, a platform here. But um, you know I'm looking for the next role where I can make a difference in an organization. When I'm thinking back over my recent career, I've had two opportunities to lead teams and um, taking people that aren't aren't as either senior or knowledgeable or whatever as me and actually one of the teams. I, I felt like I was the weakest link on said team, but I was the one that was driving the, the project forward. And uh, what I got out of that was a lot of satisfaction in helping other people achieve their objectives or increase their um, value to the organization, right? And so that's that's kind of what I'm striving for. So it's you know some kind of leadership or technical lead type role. Um, I do have experience with digital security, so you know that's always interesting to me. Cloud engineering is where a lot of the market is looking for right now because it's hard to find good cloud engineers that, again, have the experience, understand the business, uh, can talk the technology, and then you need someone who can explain and train as well, right? You need to be able to talk to technical people and get them on board. You also need to be able to talk to management and get them on board. And you also need to talk to end users and people who are going to be using your products and get them on board. And that particular skill set is, you know, that hybrid skill set is kind of hard to find. And so that's that's something that I think that I bring and something I'm looking to do. Awesome. Yeah, you have some very awesome skills that I'm curious to see where you end up. Um, you got a lot of awesome stuff to offer. And, you know, seeing you at um, PowerShell, what was it, the... Was it Automation Summit? No, it was the virtual PowerShell Summit um, about oh, two yeah. years ago, I think. Yeah, seeing you in your zone, speaking to the audience, it would be really cool to find you in an organization, kind of doing your thing, making big changes. Are you, are you talking about the, the one that we did virtually with, um, I was teamed up with Mike Kanakas? That's the one, the, the, of course, yeah. legendary. The top five things you learned. Oh my gosh. That was your recap. That was pretty awesome. You know, I did that kind of out, on a lark, and the funny thing about that, let's see, when was that? That was 21, uh, you know, 2021. And, um, you know, Mike just kind of asked me, he's like, hey, you want to co-host this? And he did yeoman's work getting everything set up. And I just felt like I was the yuck yuck man uh, beside him trying to crack jokes and keep keep things lively, but also, you know, pay attention. And I didn't, I took the entire week off. Um, at that time, I was recently, uh, being let go from from the oil and gas company I worked for, and so I had I had some flexibility in my schedule, and I was like, you know, no one cares that I took a week off because, you know, hey, I was quote unquote looking for work as well, and uh, in the middle of that 
that conference, I was trying to decide between two exceptionally good offers of where I was going to go. And I, I wound up choosing um, Meta at the time, Facebook, but I chose Meta. Um, but it was a very stressful week for me because I was trying to decide what my career was going to do, uh, where it was going to go. And uh, so I'm watching these presentations and I'm taking notes. And, you know, when we did the recap day one, I was like, here's the, here's the things we learned from that. And I tried to make it somewhat humorous, but interesting, right? Here's, here's what we learned today. Well, when I got to day two, I'm like, well, shoot, now I've, now I've kind of done the top five type of thing. I need to do it again. So I outdid myself on day two and had some really funny material, I felt like. And then I got to day three, and I'm like, I have dug myself a hole that's a mile deep now because now I have to be funny and entertaining and I have to pay attention and it has to be relevant. What did I do? <laughs> but yeah, I felt like that worked out well. I love doing those kinds of events. So for that digital summit, I, I really liked your, your daily recap, but I was fascinated by Andrew's desperation to rebuild the hallway track, even though it was digital. He kept on going to these breakout rooms and no one would join him. Like he he's so bad hey. wanted the hallway track and he couldn't get it. Okay, first of all, shout out to everyone who joined me. <laughs> there were a lot of times when I was there alone. Yes, I'll give you that. But we I had some good conversations. I got to meet up with some good people. We weren't doing the podcast back then, so hopefully if we did it again, we could get a, a few more stragglers. Um, but I, I love the hallway track. I love meeting people. For me, it's all about the people. Um, it's the most interesting and exciting part of it. Yeah, I agree. My my challenge is that uh, when I go to those things, I feel like I have to get the the most out of the speaker time. And if I was a speaker, there's nothing worse than being a speaker and no one shows up to your event, right? So I want to make sure that at least my body is there in there, and I can I can hallway track at lunch, and I can hallway track at dinner, and hallway track at breakfast. Um, even though there's something most assuredly to be said for. I don't want to go to a yet another session. I just want to talk to people one-on-one -on -one and, and get to know them better and, and try to, you know, make new contacts or something like that. You know, that's, there's, there's a lot of value to that. I'm just telling you my personality is um, if, if you've ever seen me at a conference, I fill up my schedule. I'm in every room that I can get in. If it's something like Ignite when it was back when it was in Florida, I wear my feet and my poor shoes the heck out trying to get from room to room to make sure I'm in all those things. And then I stay at the conference meeting people after hours and at all the events that I can get to. And I go back to my um, room afterwards and just absolutely melt into a human puddle on the bed because whether you believe it or not, I'm actually an introvert. I find going out and meeting people taxing. You know, some people, I have a friend who's a, he's the classic extrovert. When he's around people, it's just like revving his engine all the way up. And then when he's alone, he's like, I'm so sad. I'm alone. I need someone to talk to. And then he get, gets around people and he's like, woo, here we go. So it's, it's a common misconception. Yeah. It's a common misconception that introverts can't socialize where they can. It's just, it's exhausting. The The end of summit, by the end of summit this last year, I don't think I've ever been that tired in all my life. Yeah. Because it, it was the same thing. We tried to attend every session we could. And then Andrew and I were writing a daily recap of mm. 
things we saw in there. And then we're also shooting episodes for the podcast. So it was just nonstop socialization for a week. And I was exhausted. Yeah. It's funny. You kind of break your way through that at some point. You're like, you know, like for me after day one, waking up the next day, I'm like, I have to go. I have to go. And this is the conference I got paid to go to. I have to go. And then when I'm there, it's like, okay, now, now we're going. But that dread on, on day two, where you're like, these, there's going to be a bunch of people and I'm going to have to talk to them. <laughs> now, does this podcast right here, does this kind of thing tick that energy draining bucket for you? Since it's kind of public facing, we're kind of like under the uh, pressure, so to speak, since we're live. A little. I mean, I'm, there's always the, the don't say something stupid. Don't make a fool of yourself. Fear, right? Did I say the right thing? Did I make a mistake? Um, but, you know, oh, well, that's just sometimes the wrong word comes out. For sure. Jordan, what about you? I'm curious. Does this tick your socializing out there bucket or are we just chatting with buddies? So for because I do a couple of things, the podcast, because it really is just talking PowerShell. I, this one doesn't seem to get me as much. The webcast on Thursdays that I do is I usually go home on that day and just fall asleep almost instantly. So I don't, I don't know what the difference is between the podcast and webcast, but something about the webcast is more draining to me than this is. I don't know. I don't know what it is for me. I feel like initially I had some like, oh, I'm going to be in public all the time, but now I'm just living by the seat of my pants. If if I say something silly and it's out there, well, I've already done it several times. There's a lot of things. <laughs> I've said a couple of things in these episodes where I'm like, that's not going away, but well, that's, that's all right. different. Are you asking, do I get anxiety about it or does it drain me? Because I get anxiety about just about everything. Well, fair, I guess both, but. If, well, if you've done this long enough, you've, you've made mistakes. That's just the way it is. And I've, I've listened back through some of my podcasts uh, or presentations that I've done. And I'm like, I really just said that that's totally wrong. You use the wrong term or the wrong word. And, you know, well, guess what? That sucker's out there and, you know, you, you can't edit it and you can't rewind it. So, you know, hey, hey, it's, it happens to all of us. It definitely does. And if you've been listening long enough, you've heard me say things wrong and I'm still kicking. Um, and you can too, if you make mistakes, if you're trying to take your next step with community involvement, with speaking up at work, with asking more questions, whatever it is for you, uh, it really is okay. Just kind of be in the moment with all of us. We're all here doing things live, making mistakes, doing our best, learning from when we go wrong. Yep. That was actually something I noticed I was doing in my, my new role at Meta because um, some of the best and brightest people I've had the pleasure of working with work at that organization. And that's really intimidating. You know, even if you're, even if you're confident and you're good, the person that you're working with is better than you and more confident than you, or, you know, it's real easy to find top tier talent in an organization like that. And so I spent, I feel like I spent too much of my time at that organization, not taking chances and worried about how I would look to the, to my peers and organization. And, you know, that can be a debilitating thing. You don't, you don't want that. You know, if, if, especially if your organization has a demonstrated no blame culture, you know, it's easy to talk about no blame culture, but do you actually live it up? Right. Do, 
does reputational damage happen because you had an accident and you made a mistake? Or do they recognize, like truly recognize that everyone at some point is going to do that if you're pushing hard enough on everyone? The only people who don't make mistakes are the ones who don't do anything. One of my favorite things to do at an organization is to be there, find my place, get some trust with the team, kind of prove my worth, so to speak, earn some trust, whatever, and then use myself as a way to kind of lead them, show them that things are okay, show them that asking questions. Because one person, believe it or not, can kind of start to influence the culture. It starts with one person. And if you're listening to this podcast, if you're interested and you care enough about this career and programming language and all this, then you, you might have what it takes to kind of start some of those internal changes. Be the one who, wow, this person knows all this PowerShell, but they're still comfortable asking kind of a simple question about this other technology. Wow. And by asking that question, you open up all kinds of new communications, new relationships, you open the door for new problems to be solved. And I, I really find it so efficient. Uh, if you're able to make those small cultural changes, they really add up over time. Yep. Yeah, along with that, um, you know, having it as no matter how painful it is to be able to admit that you were wrong or that you made a mistake, you know, if you own that, you're like, you know what, I, I'm the one who did that. Like, for example, uh, way back when 2000, I think it was 2004 timeframe, um, I was trying to get onto a server in the data center and it was telling me that someone was signed on. And I was like, well, I need them to sign off so I can get on, but I couldn't tell who it was because uh, RDP wasn't telling me the who it was. So I did net send, which is a command to send them a message. And I targeted that computer and I said, you know, please call me at this number. I gave them my extension and I waited I'm like, okay, I wonder if they got the message. I'm like, well, maybe I screwed up. Oh, I don't know that I put the domain. Do I need to put the domain on there? Okay. Net send domain backslash computer name. Here's my message. Go. Okay. Waited. No one responded. I'm like, I know they're logged on because I can still see that they're logged on. Maybe I didn't do this right. So um, then I screwed up and I removed the backslash from the domain and did the domain and the computer name with a space in between. So if you're doing that send, it'll do it to as many computers as you put space delimited. And when you put a domain in, it sends that message to the entire domain. And I heard every computer around me within earshot chirp as soon as I pressed enter. And I was like, I just sent a message to call me. And then my phone started ringing. <laughs> it, it seems like this is your introduction to security because you basically <laughs> did a, a non-malicious phishing, right? Like, <laughs> oh, shoot. So, and what's funny is it was near lunchtime. So people started coming back from lunch. And then they were like, my friends knew that I'd screwed up. They didn't bother to call. They just came by. They're like, hey, I thought instead of calling, I'd come check on you and see what you needed, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but considering it popped up on the uh, assistance to the CEO's computer and everyone, every other executive and executive assistant and everyone who had a computer that was on the network at the time, that week, we rolled out the uh, group policy that turned off NetSend. 
See, you you affected change. I affected change. But you know what? I owned it. I was like, here's what I did. Here's my commands. This is where I screwed up. I was trying to get the notification. The data center was two blocks away in another building. It was faster for me to try to net send. There's no phone in there that I could call someone. So my, my rationale was good, but I still screwed it up. And then I owned it. And we all got some laughs over that. And then everyone forgot about it. So you know, now you know in the future. Me. Now you know in the future. Just uh, boot whoever it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kick them off. But that's a great thing to highlight. Mistakes happen. Blame it on the system. Improve the system as time goes on. You know, try not to repeat the same mistakes. Yep. Work for organizations that don't point their fingers at you and make you feel terrible. Uh, and if they do, just know at least trust us. If you want to trust us, go for it. It's okay. Humans are going to make mistakes. If you happen to be the human on the receiving end, I'm sure you're kind of feeling not so good yourself. It's all right. It's a human thing. Your workplace, their systems could probably be a little bit more mature. And that's not entirely your fault. Right. Uh, you know, unless you're just the only person in the entire organization, then I guess it is your responsibility. Well, but. I mean, that gets into kind of, you know, what kind of controls do you have in place, right? So especially as people start making their cloud journey, they forget to have some of those controls because, you know, if if your computer is virtualized, what happens if you delete the disk? Well, your computer just disappeared. You know, you may still have the computer, like if you're in Azure, you still have the computer object, you just don't have a disk, therefore your computer won't boot. So what controls do you have in place? What policies and procedures have you, have you implemented so that you know exactly what conditions under which a disk can be removed. If you just leave it open, then it can be removed by all kinds of different methods. You don't want that. You want to know what happens. You want to know when it happens. Then you, so that's the cloud version of it. If you want to talk about the OS version of it, who can restart a server? Do you know in your organization who is authorized to restart a server? What about shut down a server? Because shutdown is worse because it's harder to get them back online. Now, if you're all virtualized with VM, you just go into the VM console and click the power button. Sweet. Who can do that? Who have you authorized to be able to go to the VMware console or the hypervisor console if you're doing Microsoft? Uh, Hyper-V, that is. And who have you authorized to be able to turn servers off? Okay, that's fine. Let's say we don't allow them to do it through Hyper-V or uh, VMware, but they can get on PowerShell and they can do stop computer. Did you know that stop computer does not have an are you sure? Do you know how I found that out? <laughs> Extensive testing? Not by reading. <laughs> stop computer, enter, go. And uh, so I wrote my own stop computer commandlet that has a, uh, it requires force or you have to confirm. And what's really fun is if you write your own and then you create an alias in PowerShell for stop computer, it'll, subs it'll supersede the actual stop computer commandlet because aliases are processed first and then it'll run mine that requires you to uh, confirm. Little additional security there. Yep. Reassurance. Now, that what I just told you is actually how people abuse PowerShell 
is they'll try to get an alias in place that'll run their code as opposed to something else. So for example, you could you could land an alias for get child item that runs some uh, attack code, but then also runs get child item with whatever parameters were passed. So every time someone's doing get child item, you're exfiltrating data from an organization and they don't know it because they've loaded code that loads ahead of get child item. So every time they LS GCI or get dash child item, they're exfiltrating data because they're running your malicious code. So you gotta pay attention to those kinds of things. Always something. <laughs> Always. Always something to look for. Always something. Now, I know we're kind of getting towards the end, but there's one question that I want to ask from way early on. You said that you've seen some stuff and that maybe we'd cover it. I know we covered some kind of, I, I would consider it seeing some stuff so far, but are there any other stories that kind of jump to you as an example of seeing some stuff? Well, um, are, are we talking about things that went horribly wrong? <laughs> Things, yeah, could be horribly wrong, could be horribly configured, could be uh, bass backwards, as the kids say. Yeah. Um, you know, for the most part, uh, I've, I've worked with good organizations that configure things properly. Um, there was the worst one we ever had uh, at a particular organization where an inadvertent command was entered. Again, we're back to who's allowed to do things, what controls are in place. How do you how do you gate check and gatekeep? And the command that was entered um, effectively pushed a new image out to every Windows server in the data center, which is not what you're wanting to have happen. And so we lost a couple thousand servers that day. And so, Thankfully, it happened on a Friday, and thankfully, the next Monday was a holiday. So we had what was left of Friday, and all of Saturday, all of Sunday, all of Monday to get things back before Tuesday. And we went round the clock. That's always the uh, the best mistake. It's like, I worked 24 hours a day for X number of days. That's when you know <laughs> you've really done it. Yeah. I mean, I, I was working, I think I wound up working, we did shifts and we, we broke them up into 12 hour shifts and I worked the night shift, the kind of the seven to seven. And was, just, did you get that shift as a penance? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a natural night owl. Uh, I would, I'd much rather be working at one o'clock in the morning than at seven o'clock in the morning. So, uh, you know, being a natural night owl, it was easy for me to to go all the way through the night and keep things keep things on track. But that was that's probably the worst one I've ever seen. Um, that was anecdotally. I I don't know how much of this I'm really supposed to talk about or can talk about. But um, the couple of things that we took away from that is you know don't don't allow people to do that kind of configuration disaster just by default. Because strangely enough, the, the tool that was used, it auto-selected to all servers in a group and the person hadn't selected a group, so it just went to all servers, right? That's a problem. Two, 
They shouldn't have, if they were unsure, they should have waited. And then the big one was when it came time to, okay, how did this happen? And what are we going to do to make sure it didn't happen again? Unfortunately, some some people said, well, this was unavoidable. And it's almost like you, in a situation like that, you can't deflect the blame. Someone has to own it. And, you know, wasn't in my group, so I don't know. But um, had it been my group, I just and had it been me, I'd have been like, it was me. I did it. It sucks. It's the worst thing that could have ever happen in my career. I will take whatever responsibility and whatever punishment that comes from this up to including being let go. Because for better or for worse, I did it. And the that's kind of the the takeaway from that is I wish I wish the people that were involved in that had said my fault and then gotten really busy on here's all the things we're going to do to make sure that doesn't happen. But sometimes things are just totally out of your control. For example, one time when I was doing um, uh, just PC support, I went to a law firm at after hours. We were doing some work on their server. It was their it was their file server and their RAS server. So that's how everything connected. And I said, okay, we've got everything done. I was talking with my tech contact there. I'm like, we are done. This work is over. Uh, but there is a new service pack out. And I've been installing it at other clients. I haven't had any issues. Do you want to install it? You don't have to. He's like, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. And I said, uh, so just to be clear, you have backups. Because service packs, at least back then, back in the 90s, service packs were somewhat dangerous. I'm like, you have backups. He's like, yes, we have backups. I'm like, okay. And where are they? He's like, well, this was the latest one right here. And then this was this week's, here's this week's back. Sweet. So I installed service pack. Took a little while to get it done. Then it rebooted in order to install it. And it blue screened on boot up. And that was the last time that OS did anything. So then you're like, oh, shoot. Okay, let's get the backups. We'll boot a minimal OS. We'll load your backups. Turns out all their backup tapes were blank. Yikes. <laughs> they didn't test them? Every tape, blank. No, they hadn't tested any of it. But they right. had the good feeling that they did have backups. Uh, like they, the warm- they were feeling really good about their backup strategy. So, you got the warm fuzzies. Yeah, so here it is. Now it's eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night, me and this guy. And uh, one of our, our other techs had done their setup. So I just called his cell phone. I'm like, we have a disaster here. I need you to come join me. We got to get this server rebuilt. And it was at a law firm and all their case material and everything was on this server. So uh, we rebuilt that server overnight and had it online by eight in the morning. So the early early risers that got in, we said, hey, you're just going to have to wait a little bit until we're done working on this server. And we were able to get back. No fault of mine. Sort of some fault on the client because they never tested their backup. But, you know, if you if you think if you think, you know, then you think, you know. Jeez. So that's not a fun day. I have some great news for you. What's that? It's time for the dreaded common parameters, but you've already crushed the first question and I haven't even asked it. Which was what? 
what is one time something went wrong while on the job and how did you handle it? <laughs> and what did you learn? I, I feel like that's, uh, that's done. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's trust, a... but verify, I think is what I learned. It's like when someone says they have a backup, you're like, okay, prove it, <laughs> prove it. Cause if you can't prove it, then you don't have a backup. You think you have a backup. You don't have a backup. You probably um, tell your bosses that you have a backup and it feels really good. You don't have to do anything, but yep. yeah. Definitely want to test those. Yeah, that happened to me on Windows, uh, not Windows, year 2000 as well. I had a client, uh, they had a monolith server. It was a graphic design and they were they were very adamant about every file gets stored on the server because they didn't want a PC crash to lose their customer's uh, product, right? And they said, we have a RAID, we've got multiple redundant hard drives, this is where everything goes and we got backups. Every client file goes on there. Okay. So Y2K comes along and their tech um, decided that it was a good idea to shut the server down for the Y2K rollover. What he didn't do was shut it down, let it sit for a minute, turn it back on, let all the drives spin up so that they, uh, so that the heads back on spinning disk, the heads needed to go into the landing zone in order to clean them because you get this minor film buildup from oil and whatever else that's in a hard drive that you just can't seem to ever get rid of. So he didn't do that. So then when they come in on Monday morning and they power the server up, the server won't boot. Yet again, I get called out, hey, server won't boot, all our files are on this thing, but whatever. I'm like, okay, I go out there and I did everything I could to try to get that thing back, couldn't get it back. I'm like, all right, we're gonna have to restore from tape for your OS drives. All your other data drives, I can hear them spin up, they're fine, but your OS drive is toast. And it was a, a RAID 1 OS drive. So both drives, no good. Um, so we go to get the tapes, load up the minimal OS, check the tapes. Not a dang thing on those tapes again. So they learned their lesson, huh? I'm like, it's a different client, right? Oh, different client. Okay. <laughs> totally different client. I'm like, again with this? Because, you know, it had happened a year or so before that. So what I did is the fix that I got that server back, I would press the power button and I'd listen to the drive and I could hear it going, uh, 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 trying to spin up and I'd turn it off and turn it back on and I would count and I'd get the timing right and listen for it to try and do its thing. And by the way, I'm doing this while laying on the floor because you know the server's on the floor, I'm, I'm down there. So I powered it on, I had the timing down and I slapped it really hard on the top right over the drives, the spindles and it spun up and the OS came up. Percussive maintenance. Percussive maintenance. I managed to get stiction undone on that drive. I walked out of there with my cape flowing in the breeze <laughs> as a superhero would. I just saved your entire business with a well-timed slap. <laughs> that might be the most successful percussive maintenance of all time. Possibly. All right, what other questions you got? All right, we got, uh, with what you know now, what's one tip that you would give your younger self when you were first starting in IT? Mm, I think the the one tip I would give is take more chances when the costs are less for something not working out. So when you're young and you're getting your career started and you don't have a family and you don't have a mortgage and you don't have a bunch of bills and you're a little more flexible, you can move around. Take more chances then because momentum and inertia just make it harder to do that later in life. So that's that's what I do. It's a fantastic answer. 
All right, and the last one, and this is the most intimidating. What's your three favorite modules in PowerShell? Ooh, three favorite modules. Okay, so uh, this feels like it's cheating, but it's PS Readline. I the, there's one thing in PS Readline that I use the absolute most, which is the command history. I get really upset when my command history is not available to me because I want to be able to search back through my history. That is my knowledge base of all the commands I've run that were successful or not successful, and I want to know what I've done. So just thinking, love that. And I got really good at um, doing, doing things like uh, GC for... Um, you know, I just realized, you know, we were talking about mistakes. I was telling way back early, I was saying GC for git command. That's not git command. That's git content. GCM is git command. So rewind all the way back. I screwed up. I knew I was gonna, it was going to happen. It's okay. So it's git command. So GC for git command. And then um, I want to do the uh, git, what is it, git ps readline options. And then I get the, the path to the command file. And then I'll pipe that into select string and go look for text that uh, I may have entered or commands that I may have entered so that I get the results back for all the commands that I've used that were similar to that. And I use that as kind of a knowledge base for the commands that I've used or entered. So PS readline, Active Directory module. You know, if you're in a corporate environment, get comfortable with the Active Directory module because Active Directory by default is read for all users and it has to be, otherwise Active Directory doesn't work. And so you can get a lot of information like who's the manager, you can get your org structure, you can do commands that tell you um, how many reports a particular director has. You can go see how many service accounts there are, you can see all kinds of you know computer information, everything. So get comfortable with Active Directory commands. And then the final one I would go with is probably posh git, because if you're working with git repos, it's really handy to have that there at your prompt. I know it's not the fastest. I know other people have done some really excellent customization on their prompts to see um, what's what's out there and and you know getting your your branches with the little symbols and people have done really cool things. I'm more of a live off the land kind of person. I want the basics but PoshKit gives me what I'm looking for pretty quick. Uh, if I could, since I've done those, I have some honorable mentions that I, I would touch on, uh, one of which is curl to ps module. If you haven't heard of it or used it, it will take a curl command and turn it into either invoke web request or invoke rest method. It's super slick because a lot of examples that you're looking for on the web when someone's doing a, hey, run this command, it'll go pull this thing down from a website, they're almost always curl. Now, of course, Windows has curl built into it, but we're PowerShell people. We want to use the PowerShell tools. And besides which, Mark Krause's work uh, needs to be recognized for how awesome it is. And so um, curl to PS is really helpful. When I do presentations, I like using Lumos, L-U-M-O-S. It'll switch you back and forth from dark mode to light mode, which is super handy. So when it's time to do your presentations, it's, in my opinion, it's better to use light mode. I know a lot of people like dark mode and they're, they're real passionate about it. I get that. But when you're doing presentations, studies have shown that your audience can read your material easier and also 
um, because they can read it easier, they grasp it better, so they get better retention if you're using dark text on light backgrounds. Uh, it also helps people with stigmatisms so that they get more crisp text. So there's the science behind that choice. So Lumos. And then the last one is one that's called commonary.pasm. Uh, let me spell the whole thing. C-O-M-M-U-N-A-R-Y dot P-A-S-M. And that one's, that one's an odd one, but it does some fairly high order um, pattern matching. And it'll tell you the similarity score. It'll give you a similarity score for content that you send it. So if you send it a word like community, and then you send it a word like um, uh, computational, it'll tell you how close those two words are to each other based on how many similar characters they have and where the characters are in the word. That's one of the things it'll do. And so it'll give you a similarity score. Why is that important? Well, when you're dealing with files on a file share or a file server, and you may have a lot of duplicates, but you don't have any way of checking those duplicates, duplicate files or duplicate anything other than the file names, you can use that command to go see how similar are the file names to maybe an authoritative list. And then you can kind of get a feel for what content should be in what location. At least that's how I wound up using it. So yeah, we got we got uh, some of the classics and some brand new ones for people to try out. Yep. I think PS Readline is I think on everyone's everyone's list. That thing is like the gold standard for modules at this point, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It, I mean, other than the the built-in ones. I mean, I use I use the built-in ones all the time. Because PS Readline is now built in, right? Yep. And Active Directory, you can't install from the gallery. You have to install it as part of the OS. And it doesn't, it's not very good, like cross platform. It's just people have tried different things, but it's janky, right? So, you know, that's those two you don't actually go get. Posh Git is the only one that I actually go to the gallery and go grab and actually use. Yeah, I've before I have made it where I could load the Active Directory tools on a system that didn't have the or I forget the the mod the application need like the admin pack. I think is what has that one. Yeah, and it's it, the ma the management pack. Yeah, the, a, lot, a lot goes into making it work without just having the management pack installed. Yep. Right. Well, <clears throat> I don't know if you know this, Steve. Everyone used to think that Andrew was bursting with potential. And uh, <laughs> it turns out it was just his appendix the whole time. <laughs> so now with the new uh, broken down Andrew, he's here to shill. Let's hope he has the uh, he has what he takes to get it done. That's right. See, I know what the problem is. Um, it was all the ribbing that you give him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Turn my misery into jokes. Enjoy, enjoy. Um, yeah, if you haven't been keeping up and somehow... Uh, well, I would be surprised if anybody knew, but yeah, I had surgery since our previous episode. Little uh, appendix removal, nothing too major. Had to make it back for the shill and for our great guest, Stephen Judd. Thank you. Uh, and as I was going down, uh, they were putting me under anesthesia. And the anesthesiologist was like, all right, pick a dream. Have a great night. 
And I was laying there. I was like, oh, what's my dream going to be? Um, and I was thinking, oh, I should just definitely think about my family and all this great stuff I have. And then I decided at the last moment, no, we're choosing PowerShell. We're dreaming. I'm getting my next big idea. I'm getting my inspiration here. And you know what? I didn't. Um, this is all a lie. I thought about my family. But if you're still <laughs> listening, thank you so much for being here. Um, to support and say thanks for this awesome episode, feel free to like and comment on YouTube and leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. You can email us, PowerShell at pdq.com, or you can tweet us at PowerShellPod. Thank you so much to our amazing guest, Stephen Judd. Stephen, where can people find you if they want to keep up with you? So the easy way to keep up with me is on Twitter, um, as well, as long as Twitter lasts, apparently. Uh, it's at Stephen Judd, spelled with a V. So S-T-E-V-E-N-J-U-D-D. I'm also on LinkedIn, and I believe it's also Stephen Judd on LinkedIn. So uh, if it's a business contact, that's where I kind of keep my business contacts. Um, but Twitter is the best place because that's, that's where I am the most. I almost forgot. Oh, yeah. I also have a horrible blog, blog.stephenjudd.com. I say it's horrible because it's formatted like someone who doesn't know uh, anything at all about design or uh, HTML or uh, uh, Markdown. So yeah, that's me. Uh, but the content is there and the content is good. And I stand behind my content, just not my graphic design. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm glad we ended on a point where you didn't go deep and wide with the uh, graphics. Thank you. Thanks for joining the PowerShell podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. The only device of its kind in the world. The PowerShell podcast is a production of PDQ.com.